welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today. Oops, no I'm not. I'm joined <laughs> on Zencaster today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, you guys. Hi from the void. I'm from the void. How are you holding up, both of you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Just, you know, thinking way too much about every single minor throat pain that I have or when I feel slightly headachy because I haven't had any water. <laughs> but otherwise, I'm fine. Oh, you're, yeah. hy- you're hypochondrying? Aren't we all right now? Like, it just feels like every time I walk outside, I've never, I've never been this clean in my life. I wash my hands like no less than 30 times a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm normally so dirty. So, so what I'm seeing. <laughs> and I usually revel in it. You know, I think, oh, yeah, this is healthy. But right now it, it feels scary. But now it isn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, today... Through our quarantine, we're going to talk to you, author and visual artist Harry Dodge, who has a new book out called My Meteorite, or Without the Random, There Can Be No New Thing. What do you guys yeah. think? I'm always, as you guys know, like I'm always down to think about relation and randomness and to go on kind of the wonderful, like, there's an interesting way in which like the, the nonlinear night life narrative that Harry Dodge brings to this book is just like everything that I tend to love. So it's like, I definitely enjoyed like rethinking how we can sequence a life in nonlinear fashion. Mm, Yes. I uh, reviewed this book for freeze. I was asked to review this book. So I went deep on Harry's background as I was reading it. And he's just had like such an interesting career and um, Mm -hmm. he does get into this a little bit in the book, but he you know, started out as a performance artist and he used to run this really well-known cafe in San Francisco. It was also like a performance space and he's made just these crazy wild videos and a sculptor and, and the book gets into some of that, but it's also about just more intimate moments in his life, his family. And I found it really interesting and very like unconventionally structured in a way that was compelling to me if at times, you know, Sometimes I was confused, but it, it was like a really like productive confusion. Yeah. I didn't tell him this, but I used to teach his work at UCLA back oh. a long time ago. Yeah. I used to show one of, so he has a series, I think, that is a series of fake lectures on scientific subjects, but he's essentially making stuff up as he goes along. Um <laughs> And they're they're very good and they're very funny and I would teach them in a, a sensitivity class that I taught it. So I've been an admirer for a long time and it was a pleasure to be talking to him. Yeah. Well, let's listen to our interview. Let's do it. Today we're talking to Harry Dodge. Harry Dodge is a writer and visual artist whose work has been exhibited at venues nationally and internationally. His solo and collaborative work is held in numerous institutions, like the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. In 2017, Dodge was awarded a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship. He lives with his family in Los Angeles. His new book is called My Meteorite, 
And Harry is joining us today remotely from his home in LA. Thank you so much, Harry, for talking to us. Thanks for having me. This whole interview doesn't have to be about the coronavirus, but just because that's the current moment we're in, I just wanted to ask how you're doing and what it's like to have a book come out at this time. Well, you know, I'm really fortunate for myself and my immediate family to be safe and sound at the moment. You know, we feel fortunate about that. It's a lot of grief, worry, anxiety about the country in general and what's to come. A lot of anger about how it's being handled. I guess to answer your question, it's it's pretty emotional. Yeah. The book, you know, has certain themes throughout. And one of those is the kind of our interconnectedness. Have you been thinking about aspects of your book in relation to the crisis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, throughout the book, I'm really writing and trying to relay some of the stuff that I'm interested in with regard to matter, materiality, even quantum particles. And I'm, I guess I'm trying to figure out through the course of the book whether all matter has come to us in sort of a fabric or a field in which even one little effect kind of reverberates through everything else. So this idea of interconnectedness or remote connectedness. And I guess I sort of, through the book, run through a bunch of instances of questions about that and a sort of litany of instances of that. And so when this all started, then, you know, it's kind of twofold. One is this thing that has this sort of great magnitude, like over the course of three months or four months or something, that this particle, this virus has somehow traveled a web by touch that's sort of an unimaginably large web now. And so that I think is weird and sublime and overwhelming for people. And it also brings home the idea that we're connected and that we connect, that we actually just share particles eventually, given enough time. And in this case, something can travel globally in three months. So that's just kind of mind boggling. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is this idea of how we are now linking up, which is often by screen and by these sort of constant (laughs) Zoom meetings. And that's really interesting too. And there's a kind of virtuality in that. Obviously we're in meat space on either side of the screen, but it's really curious how comforted we all are by connecting through the screen. In a similar way, I wanted to talk, and again, we're not going to talk all about coronavirus, but so much of the book is concerned with questions about interconnectedness, right? So another term that often comes up will be intersubjectivity, how we're not, no one story is really our own. And you make a lot of the random encounter, well, random in at least one sense, I guess. By another view, it's kind of this more cosmic experience that folds us all together. So I'm wondering, you know, what does relation mean for you in the book? Because it seems like a particularly freighted term, especially when it's like you want relation, but you're also afraid of it in some ways. So can you just talk a little bit for us about how you understand relation and maybe how you're rethinking the capacity for relation and random encounter in these kind of pandemic times? Well, that's interesting. For me, I should pull apart the idea of random from the idea of relation, just up front here. I mean, to answer your question about how I think of relation, and it is freighted in the book, I tend to think of it in the book in two ways, at least two ways. And one is, you're right, this kind of idea of sociality, Mm -hmm. just like ramming into people, whether that be at openings or answering the phone, God forbid. 
answering emails. But mainly in the book, I talk about being face-to-face with other humans and how that's always really scary for me. And for some reason, it's difficult. Once I'm in front of people, I'm fine. But it's always like this sort of lead up to it. There's a lot of anxiety. And so I sometimes don't even, you know, leave the house. And in the book, I think of it as the character of the author. (laughs) The character of the author, who's not quite me, (laughs) makes a sort of like weird deal with himself, which is what would happen if I started to try to leave the house and hang out with people that I didn't know and sort of just trust the world a little bit more? Is that an important thing to do? And so it's a kind of odd question. It's supposed to be a little bit ridiculous. (laughs) That is like a kind of hinge piece (laughs) that sets the character in motion. It's sort of a conceit or an experiment, but it's a little bit pathetic or there's a sort of pathos to it. And I was interested in that and the sort of pathos of like needing to trick yourself (laughs) into actually going to social spaces, you know. And then the other side of that, as far as another way that I use the word relation in the book is like what we were just talking about, any kind of intersubjectivity, any kind of collision. And those could be definitely large or small, you know, that all things are related. So Harry, just to return to the the book, it's a memoir of sorts, we should say. Again, it's called My Meteorite, or Without the Random, There Could Be No New Thing. And it begins with the death of the narrator's mother. Now you say that this is the author character that you've built. It's not quite you. What do you see or feel as a distinction between the character that you've built on the page and yourself? Should we think about this book as a memoir or should we think of it in different terms? Should we resist the genre distinctions? Yeah, I never thought of the word memoir while I was writing it. I was writing and sort of using the fodder of my life as sort of electric, energy-filled, very specific details by which to build thoughts and by which to build sentences, things to... They're so concrete and so usable, but really I was interested in talking about relation and materiality. I didn't have any interest in telling necessarily, at least none, none conscious. I didn't necessarily have a conscious interest in telling people about myself. <laughs> I do really enjoy the practice of writing. I felt like that's what I was up to. I was making a book. I wanted to make a good book. I do always want to talk to people about connectedness or interconnectedness. And I'm interested right now, maybe of putting that particular book into the world, I'm interested in talking about love and sort of Mm -hmm. redefining it and sort of juggling the word around a little bit. No, I wouldn't think of it as a memoir. They, the book company really felt like that was an apt term for it. And I pushed back a little bit and I kept saying, can't we put literary nonfiction? (laughs) (laughs) They were like, no, memoirs just so that the bookstore knows where to put it. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, whatever you say. And then in the press release, I would bug them to change it and stuff. So there was a kind of push and pull with that. Even when I was first putting the book out, sort of taking it around to people, I was really curious about whether or not it would be, I guess I could never decide whether it was a fiction book or a nonfiction book. I wrote it as fiction. I gave myself license Mm. by telling myself that it was fiction. In some cases, there were these certain like specific details and I often wouldn't look them up. You know, like when I talk about the oldest tree in the world and the way it was cut down, that was an anecdote (laughs) that I had read about many, many, many years ago. 
because I felt like, well, this is just my memory. One, it's a book about an imperfect memory. And two, Mm -hmm. maybe it's just fiction. I didn't necessarily corroborate a lot of the facts. And so one of the people that was interested in the book, I said to her, I said, well, you know, I don't know if you could call this nonfiction because a lot of the stuff isn't true. (laughs) No one could use this as a resource to write other nonfiction, put it that way. And she said, well, I don't think that's an important... Anyway, she laughed. It's interesting because maybe we could just talk a little bit about the form that the book takes. It's not linear. It jumps around from, you know, different moments in time and these moments often kind of reverberate with each other. So there's kind of an accretion of time, but then there's also like a lot of echoing. The book really takes coincidence as as one of its main themes. So I'm curious, just, it seems like a really complex form and how you went about, you know, organizing it as you were writing. Well, the process sort of briefly was I began taking notes, quick notes about my days, starting around the beginning of 2016, around the time my dad decided he should come and live in LA because his dementia was getting worse. I started to take daily notes about what was happening with me, me and him, basically, what was happening. And I did that for about a year. At the point he died, I sat down, it was really the day after, I think, or even the same day or something like that. And I started to write through the notes and fill them out. But I accidentally, at that point, began writing sort of contemporaneously, basically. I was writing about the day he died, but I was also writing about last year's stuff. So I felt like the book sort of naturally started to, I thought of it as linear, but 2016 was moving forward and also 2017 was moving forward. So my dad dies at the beginning of the book, but he also dies at the end of the book. I thought that worked. I mean, initially I was really nervous about starting to write about writing a book and I didn't necessarily want there to be a, the figure of the book. And so that made me nervous at first, but I ended up cutting a lot of that out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, you know, the notes were obviously in fragments because in some ways days are already fragmented and notes are fragmented. And because I wasn't necessarily interested in writing a memoir, I felt like I was writing about rhymes, like kind of cosmic rhymes, and about sort of those kinds of reverberations. I just allowed myself to put things, it's like baking where you kind of push some butter into the side of the bun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I do think of it as somehow like there are progressions, like something to hang your hat on. For example, there's a kind of progress about the mocha sculpture acquisition that's moving forward. The post death grief that I'm having about my dad moves forward in time where I'm waiting for his ashes and finally the ashes come. And then also his dementia is getting worse as well. And so in a way it's not linear, but in another way it is. I do make work that pushes at poetics and sort of involves poetics, but I also have been making work long enough that I feel like I do want to, I think of it as social. I want to give people something to follow and track, keep them turning pages. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Harry Dodge, author of My Meteorite. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
We have Garth Greenwell on the line with us. Garth's latest book is called Cleanness, and he's calling in to give us a book recommendation. Garth, what book are you going to recommend? So I want to recommend a book that I've only recently discovered by a writer I've only recently discovered, and I don't have like a a spiel about it. I don't know how to talk about it. It's a novel called The Gift by Barbara Browning. Oh, uh uh-huh. It was published... Yeah, it was published by Emily Books a few years ago. And it's just this kind of astonishing, weird hybrid beast of a book following a character named Barbara, not Barbara Browning, but Barbara, who seems to be quite close to the figure of Barbara Browning, mm-hmm. um, who is in, in the midst of sort of Occupy New York, is engaged in this art project, life project of trying to create a kind of economy of gift giving. And she organizes these workshops on something that she calls inappropriate intimacy, and one, which is a kind of wonderful way to think about what art is. <laughs> and yeah. one of the ways that she enacts inappropriate intimacy is that she records covers of songs on the ukulele, an instrument that she says she plays badly and that she doesn't sing very well. And then she sends these videos. She spams people with these videos as a way of trying to sort of spark sociality. And as a result of this, much of the narrative of the book is about an inappropriately intimate or a kind of queerly, weirdly intimate relationship she has with another musician on YouTube who may or may not exist. Hmm. And, it's just, it's one of the most kind of radically queer books I think I've read in a long time, in part in its sort of suggestion that it's genre, gender, genre is sort of radically more complex than any of the conceptual apparatus we have for thinking about it. And then especially in its thinking about how art can create sociality, can form novel kinship groups. I mean, there's a kind of radical hope in the book about the work that art can do in the world, but also a kind of clear-sightedness about the unlikeliness of the success of that work. I think it's just extraordinary. And as I say, it's my discovery of Barbara Browning, who I know has a huge fan base. Like, I I don't know how I'm so late (laughs) coming to her. But it's so exciting to discover a writer who I feel like I have to read everything she's written and... Yeah, I've just I'm kind of obsessed. Okay, this this might be too private of a question, but have you ever shared an inappropriate intimacy with someone? That is perhaps based on Oh, I think based my whole art? life. Yeah. I mean, my whole life is inappropriate intimacy, and I'll tell you, <laughs> like writing the kinds of books that I write, I am the recipient of inappropriate intimacies all the time. Um, oh, I'm you know, I bet. people send me photos and propositions and and you know, on one hand that is uncomfortable and on the other hand it does just sort of fill me with wonder that that's something that, you know, something so apparently inert as words on a page can inspire people to desire that kind of connection. That seems to me sometimes unsettling, but also very beautiful. Well, Garth, will you tell us the name of the book again and the author? The book is The Gift by Barbara Browning. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We've been speaking with Garth Greenwell. His latest book of fiction is called Cleanness. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Harry Dodge, author of My Meteorite. Harry, kind of 
along some of these lines, you know, one of the things I, that I really found gripping later in the book is you have a kind of mini thesis statement, actually, that comes out about the random, right? So you, you call for the random as that which, for you, allows for the possibility or the capacity for free will. And I'm wondering if you can just explain that a little bit more for our listeners and also give us a sense then of how the random in this kind of free will capacity kind of features in the book, which is obviously also composed and edited, right? Yeah. It's really interesting because the random and the figure of the random, <clears throat> whatever it may mean to, to different people, um, was n- not uh, on my mind as part of the organizing principle <laughs> of the book. <laughs> and it's come up a lot because the book is composed in fragments and I think it takes a long time for all of the pieces to fall into place, so to speak. So, but it's really interesting to me that I put the word random in the title and yet was somewhat um, blissfully ignorant about how much the word would, you know, figure in to how people think about the book. I am interested in the book kind of meditates upon my questions about the tension between the random and the um, the habits of mm. matter, which I, I'm really enthralled with. You know, I like the idea that there are these natural laws, and and I'm I'm just so enchanted by the idea that matter has stuff it likes to do, <laughs> that oxygen loves to like go and get with hydrogen, you know, and then once they're together, they, they love to stay together unless the conditions change, and then the oxygen will pull apart from the hydrogen and what have you. I'm so fascinated by that. And so, and to me, some of some noticing that and, and, and especially as a sculptor too, I think it's interesting, you know, to be so sort of in love with matter. And so when I take that thought to its extreme, I realize that matter made the universe, matter made planets itself, matter made humans. Um, and, um, I'm interested in all that, but you know, the scary thought in all of that when you really push on it is wondering whether or not humans themselves are just gobs of matter that has its own thing that it wants Mm -hmm. to do or whether because, or do we have this this consciousness that emerged from this really complex bag of matter put together in a really specific way. Suddenly you have this consciousness, which does actually have a mind of its own that, that, that can, that can move beyond what the matter wants to do. Um, but there's a part of me that there's a part of me that doesn't believe that's true. And there's a part of me that, that does, but I couldn't quite figure out how to get free will to talk to my idea of enchanted matter that has habits basically. So the book kind of takes these questions up over and over and over and over again. Um, when I call for the random, that sort of manifesto part um, it's a it's a kind of speech act, mm. <laughs> but it's not a it's not a definitive answer. It's a, it's a kind of a experimental um, authoritativeness. But you'll notice right in the paragraph right after that, <laughs> after I call for the random because it preserves free will, in the paragraph right after that, I talk about I, I wonder whether I'm you know a weird bag of matter that's being I say being ridden like a horse <laughs> um, by matter. So in the end, I feel that um, I don't really know. 
I really like not knowing. It's one of my favorite. It's states. very productive to not know, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that comes out in this book in your thinking about the relationship between consciousness and matter and whether people are just sheer flesh is a consideration of AI and the possibility of machine intelligence. Can you talk about that and your your research into that and your interests in the development of intelligent machines? Yeah, I am just a lay person when it comes to all of this, but I, at some point a few years ago, decided that I need, I was sort of a Luddite and a technophobe. And so I needed, I decided I needed to update my thinking patterns about technology and specifically high tech. And I wanted to see if I could make positive thoughts about computers and positive thoughts um, about human invention, even, you know, I'm sort of a misanthrope as well. Mm. I feel like humans are so fucking dumb <laughs> and just ruin everything. <clears throat> um, it's true. And it's not, un- not untrue. I would say. <laughs> but, you know, I've really felt strongly like that for years, maybe my whole life, you know, and I thought, you know, what if I tried to make a new thought about all of this? And um, what if I tried? And, and so and, and because I was aware for, for especially the last four or five years that my love of matter and my insistence that humans are continuous with nature could, was, um, was dis, uh, cogn- it created a cognitive dissonance with my um, sort of mi- misanthropy, <laughs> if you get my mm-hmm. drift. I was like, well, if humans are made of matter and matter made humans, then what makes us so awful, you know? And that's still an open question, but <laughs> it's still... I had to uh, sort of come to terms with, and, and it sort of softened me when I, when I mm-hmm. let it all sort of hang around in my mind a little longer. And so um, it was with that that sort of started my research project uh, because I started to think, well, <clears throat> if matter um, made humans and, and so humans are natural and, and sort of like did away with the idea of culture in some way um, so that we're not even just a little bit continuous with nature we're utterly continuous with nature, um, then our, then our inventions are also more like leaves or bark Mm. or seeds or something, you know, there's things we're producing, uh, with our curiosity, with our know-how, with our weird, however, sort of malignant it may be (laughs) or seem (laughs) there are these things we're producing. And so then I, I started to wonder, I, I just keep pushing on these thoughts, you know? And so I started to read, um, about, AI and machine intelligence. And I started to re- realize and sort of read about that the capacity of computers, you know, the, the, their speed and strength is just, uh, is just uh, through the roof at this point and getting sort of stronger and faster all the time. And which uh, would provide a, a lot of resolution, basically. I just started to make these thoughts like, well, if things got high resolution enough, these things that I think of as infinite or affective, you know, like emotion, human emotion, these kind mm-hmm. of unexplainable things, these mysterious things that draw us to each other. Uh, would that ever happen with a machine, you know, which was running on a binary system <clears throat> or could it, could it not? And so I was just kind of musing about that. I was reading a lot, but then I was also m- musing about that. And so there's a lot of, a lot of that in the book. Here, I wanted to ask you, you know, um, so you are married to the writer Maggie Nelson, 
And there's a scene in this, and, and you were featured in um, her very well-known book, The Argonaut. So you kind of already exist as this character for, for a lot of readers, you know, that they got to know you in that book. And um, there's a scene in this book where you're meeting Hilton Owls, the writer at a restaurant, and you and Maggie are both, you know, trying to, you want to maintain your privacy and not, you know, speak too out of turn about how you came together and um, privacy is kind of a, you're saying you kind of relating to people, you're drawn to people, but then you're also scared and privacy, you know, when you're writing a book about yourself and, and about elements of your past, it's um, that, that must come up quite, quite a bit. And this book, it, it, there's all these tantalizing views of you growing up and moving to San Francisco and the kind of like vagabond life that you lived at certain points and, you know, kind of oblique references to how you started out as an artist, which I just found so fascinating and moving. But you also, it's like you don't show that much of, um, of your past. And I, and yet at the same time, you know, you're showing the most intimate moments that you've experienced with the death of both your parents and some aspects of your personal life. So I guess I, I just wondered about that matrix of, you know, intimate and kind of guarded and how you dealt with that, you know, in writing of the book and, and, and in just being a public figure in general. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you can tell already from my idea that the book is fiction. Right. <laughs> and this idea of the character of the author, you can already hear me sort of <laughs> backpedaling, trying to sort of get this volume, you know, this lump of information <laughs> away from me. <laughs> so this is a hard question because the I have so many answers and so much I want to say, but, you know, I will say that I am a private person and I don't really like necessarily being a public figure. I but I am a creative person and I I love reading and I love books in which I'm reading really intense details of this or that. You know, I want to I want to sort of like um read about someone either thinking feverishly or trying to figure something out feverishly or just going through things, you know, so I wanted as a writer sort of taking up, taking up this project, I, I was committed to coming up with some details to give the book some amplitude and give it some, uh, and sort of provide some emotional amplitude for a reader. Cause I love those things and I respect those things. So, but the thing is, when someone is writing or making a video, whether or not they claim it is true or autobiographical, there's always this really intense element of fiction about it because you're, you're coming in with your framing devices. You're coming in with all your language. You're transposing something from obviously a moment, you know, you're representing a thing. And so it's always going to be, it's always going to fail to be that thing, you know, and it's going to be uh, via authorship transformed into something else, which is great. And it makes it a construction, you know, and I'm interested in constructedness. So I think, you know, um, I, two things, one uh, in my artwork, I often use figurative items, whether it be a bucket <laughs> or other recognizable objects, um, and then sort of insist that they're not <clears throat> those objects. So this kind of idea of defamiliarization or 
somehow making an abstraction from a figure. I was up to the same thing in the book where it was figure after figure after figure being laid down. But I think what I was most interested in was the sort of sculptural whole uh, and, the, and the sort of reverberation, the sort of poetics and reverberative elements that would come to be the subject matter, not really the figure after figure after autobiographical figure. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, Do you buy uh, that? But, yeah, and I guess uh, were, were, were there, you know, were there things that you just decided like, this is not part of the, the figure I want? I mean, I'm sure there were, there were tons of things, but did you, was yeah. there anything in particular that you felt like, you know, I just don't want to write about this aspect of myself or my, my past or. Yeah. I mean, just tons, tons and tons of things. I mean, I, I, you know, in a book, you're almost writing about nothing relative to the moments that you've lived, you know? I mean, I have, I have certain things that I'm interested in, certain thoughts I'm, I'm that really take up a lot of my time and I teach about those things. You know, I teach at CalArts and, and uh, I have just questions that nag at me. And those are the things I want to make art about and put into the world because ultimately art, I think of it as social, you know, some sort of mediating object, you know, it's like a a missive out from me to the world. Hopefully people talk to me back and I really want to be having conversations that help me think through these really kind of hot, juicy questions that are sort of unanswerable. And I don't want to have conversations about things I'm uninterested in. So I feel like I'm old enough to know Mm-hmm. Um, that if if you don't want to talk about it, don't introduce it. Mm-hmm. You know, Harry, this actually leads me to ask um, a question. One of the things that I you know particularly enjoyed also in reading through the book is the kind of frequent citation of critical theorists and philosophers, right? And I'm th- mm-hmm. I'm interested in how critical, you know, kind of what you find useful about critical theory and philosophy both as kind of a, um, as a way of kind of a toolkit or tools for making sense, making patterns of life and kind of using them as a tool for reading and navigating, but also as a kind of creative act, right? Like that's oftentimes what I think about when I think about Deleuze, for example, who would be, you know, it signifies very, you know, uh, there's a lot of affinity there, I think, in in your work and the kind of things that you're discussing. Can you talk a little bit about that, just kind of what theory or philosophy means to you, both as like a tool and also as a creative act? My background is um, sort of interesting in that, and I say this in the book, I, I sort of left high school early for college and sort of escaped from my, you know, kind of dysfunctional childhood household. And I ended up at college, but then I ended up literally thinking I was too cool for school. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, whatever, my first semester I got all, I failed everything. And my second semester I got all A's and I thought, this is not interesting. Whatever I need to learn, I need to teach it to myself, you know? And so that was, and not long after that, I moved to San Francisco. And I, I, I thought that everyone I was meeting, you know, had also foregone a college education. And so I, um, I did, you know, I'm sort of an autodidact and, and basically what I know I've, I've sort of learned from other people, not, not through an institution, mm, okay. let's put it that way, or, or taught it to myself. After I made By Hook or By Crook and I, I went to grad school, I started to read some theory and, and uh, some critical theory, some philosophy. And I was really um, 
enchanted. I was, I just loved it. And I loved the fact that I didn't understand it <laughs> at all almost, but I committed right then and there to figure it out because it was something like a, a super, super intense bodily pleasure in the, in the yeah. reading of it that started. And, um, I, I think I realized then that I feel thinking as a full body pleasure. <laughs> and basically after that, the rest is history. You know, I, will try to find complicated texts or not so complicated texts. Um, but I really like to be on the edge of what I can understand. And um, there's something so generative for me there. And so critical theory does that for me. A lot of philosophy does that for me. And I, I tend to read looking for ideas that I think I'm having, <laughs> one. And two, I read for ideas that I, I would have never thought of. And so just a new, a new take on something that sort of blows me away, things that, that I wouldn't have, um, have uh, configured in my own mind. And uh, I do take a lot of notes, and I definitely bring uh, text to uh, class as well. Being a teacher helps me keep in touch with a variety of texts. And uh, yeah, it's very, very much a pleasure. So Harry, do you think, will you be writing another book? <laughs> I'm already working on something. Um, I, uh, I'm working on like a, I want to write a very short novel actually. Huh. And I'm working on something I was, I've been working for the last six or seven months on it. As soon as the other book was done, I realized that I really enjoyed the practice. Um, I used to be in my studio, you know, 30 or 40 hours a week. And now I've just switched over to sort of generating language for the last couple of years. I was doing that, writing the book and I, I didn't feel like stopping. So I am definitely working on something. It's, um, just a completely spastic, um, maybe science fiction <laughs> um, Makes sense. farce, basically. Yeah. Huh. Great. And now it's called Bonkers. It's called Bonkers? Yeah. Well, it's actually called Bonkers, a novel about a snake. Which, <laughs> that's what it's called now. I don't know if it'll keep that title. <laughs> nice. I like uh, that title. Yeah, yeah I do too. Um, well, thank we'll, you so much, Harry. We'll look forward to that. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank you. It was it was fun talking to you guys. It was a group a fun group conversation. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. We've been speaking to Harry Dodge. He's a, a writer and a visual artist. His new book is called My Meteorite. Thanks again, Harry. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.